Friends, uh, pull up a chair, sit down, make yourself comfortable, as I am. In the mid-1960s, the folk singer Pete Seeger was a huge figure in American music. He was at the vanguard of the protest movement and famous enough to have his own TV show. And uh, I'd like to introduce you to Dick Farina and Mimi Farina. That's Richard, or Dick Farina, appearing on the show in 1966. I'm going to do a song uh, that I wrote with um, Mimi's sister Pauline that you know parts of, called Black Up Your Sorrows, and we'd like you to play it with us, or mm -hmm. sing it with us, whatever you like. Richard Farina seemed destined for success. A singer, songwriter and novelist, he was friends with the likes of Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. There's a reason you probably haven't heard of Richard Farina. Three months after appearing with Pete Seeger, he died in a motorcycle crash near Monterey in California. He was just 29. His death cut short a life full of charisma, imagination and mystery. Heaney, and I've been fascinated by Richard ever since I learned we share a connection to the same part of Ireland. Before she met my father, Seamus Heaney, my mother Mary was a Devlin from Arbeau in County Tyrone, on the banks of Loch Ney. It was through her that I first heard of Richard Freenia. She told me how, as a young man, he had visited this quiet part of Northern Ireland, where his mother had been born. His father came from Cuba. Richard talked about his time in Ireland for the rest of his life. He told stories of secret missions when he was here. He even claimed he was in the IRA. I wanted to know more about this enigmatic writer and musician. Fifty years after his death, I'm in Arbo, following in his footsteps. I'll get a picture of yourself as well. Uh -huh. If you're in front of it, that's Oni so Crozier, Richard's uncle. Yeah. What do you say? That's what? that's the whole yard, and that's the house. Okay, this uh -huh. house here. Uh -huh. uh, that's the house there. Ah, for God's sake! That's where Richard was. <laughs> oh, for God's sake! Oh. Uh -huh. Richard was my sister's son. He was born in 1937. Teresa left in 1929, and the first time she was back here in Ireland was. 1953. Oni spent a lot of time with his American nephew during those visits and remembers him well as a teenager and as a young man. The first time he came, did he come here by himself or did he come with your sister? He come with my sister in 53. And the second time he came on his own and the third time he came on his own. Richard was a very outgoing fella. He wanted to... Nobody to help him to find out everything for himself. No, he got on with everybody he met, you know. Everybody was his friend. Didn't matter who they were. <laughs> uh, whether it was men or women or anything like that, just chatted away to them. Uh, he did indeed. One of the people who encountered Richard was my mother, Mary, who was from the same generation. Now she was returning with me to her childhood home. 
Here we are on the, lo- on the cross with the river of light behind it. It's beautiful oh. on the loch. I'm with my mother at Arbo Cross, a place we both know well. And this is kind of the iconic... This is the iconic thing for Arbo. It's a, it's a big high cross, 12th century cross. And uh, Arbo is associated with St Coleman. My grandparents live nearby and I spent my childhood summers here. It's a place Richard would also have heard about when he was growing up in America. A lot of big families, a lot of emigration. And of course, Richard's mother emigrated to America like so many people from this country. For the people who stayed in the area, the lake was at the heart of their lives. This particular area, because we are on the shores of Loch Ness, there would have been a lot of fishermen. When I was a child, I used to go down. There were a lot of boats in there. The old retired fishermen would have been setting the lines, the long lines, because it's eel fishing. That is, our bo- the Loch Ness is very uh, full of eel, still is. The lake would make a big impression on Richard. It's easy to see why. Loch Ness is actually so big, it's like an inland sea. Pat Grimes has lived in Arbo all his life and has written several books on the area. A lot of the families fished for their livelihood on the loch and that's what makes us different. Not totally unique, but um, more like the west coast of Ireland, maybe that sort of community, fishing community, rather than a farming community. All the fishermen knew him, got to know him because he came out with us on the boat. And he enjoyed it. He just stood up on the head of the boat in the front of her. The waves splashed over his head. <laughs> Richard would tell stories about Loch Ness for the rest of his life. But he wouldn't just talk about going out on the fishing boats. He claimed to have taken part in IRA operations on the lake. It was only one of the colourful tales Richard would spin about himself. He had a gift for spinning tales that existed at the sweet spot at the right on the outside of the heliosphere of credibility. That's David Haydu, Richard Farina's biographer. Richard not only visited Ireland as a teenager, but Cuba as well. Right? Oh, that, that realm of mystery. It's like, wait a minute, that, that can't possibly be true. That's too fabulous, but... Hmm, but maybe it is. He really he really was there. He claimed to run guns for Castro in Cuba, you know, when he, but, but he really did go to Cuba. Of course he was too young to have run guns for Castro. He was a child at the time and his family members said he just stayed at the house and read comic books. So uh, he he claims to have met uh, Ernest Hemingway and befriended Ernest Hemingway when he was in Cuba. It's not really plausible, but he was there. He claims to have, you know, had done mysterious things for the IRA, and he told you know, wild stories about secret missions where he's, you know, he strapped um, uh, explosives to his back and you know swam across a lake and you know and uh, sunk a ship. Or, uh, but you know, he, as you say, he was all the he was there, and it's maybe uh, some of it's true. Richard certainly knew about the IRA. Our boat was a nationalist area in Unionist-ruled Northern Ireland, and when he was there, he was always keen to know more about the history of the Republican movement. He never, he never hesitated in in asking what 
about the troubles and everything else and how they started and about Ireland, how it became uh, divided and all this. Uh, he wanted to know all that. Back in America, however, Richard said he was a member of the IRA. He talked the talk so convincingly that his involvement was later quoted as fact in the introduction to his novel, Been Down So Long, It Looks Like Up To Me. Mr. Farina was born of a Cuban father and Irish mother, and he spent time with them in Brooklyn, Cuba, and Northern Ireland. At 18, he worked with members of the Irish Republican Army, but eventually had to leave the country. I was beginning to learn that when it came to Richard, it was difficult to untangle fact from fiction. His life wasn't always so colourful. He may have come from the buzzing metropolis of 1950s New York, but his childhood was conventional and sedate. So he's raised in a section of uh, Brooklyn called Flatbush. That's David Haydu again. Uh, his father grew up in a sugar plantation in Cuba. So he's half Cuban, half Irish. Not, not as exotic or unusual as it sounds, and not as exotic or unusual as he would make it to be. You know, to be of a mixed heritage in New York and Brooklyn was not at all uh, uncommon. Um, Farina was asthmatic, so he spent a lot of time indoors and spent a lot of time alone. So he developed an active inner life. Spent a lot of time of, uh, alone reading reading children's books, reading children's literature, and more than anything, reading comic books. This early love of fantastic tales fed an appetite for adventure and mystery that would stay with him. It also fed his romance with uh, multiple identities and secret identities. You know, I may look like a bookish kid from Brooklyn, but there's something uh, magical and wondrous and maybe even superhuman underneath. Um, and that's not a bad description for how he saw himself, or certainly how he portrayed himself in public as an adult man. In this radio interview, not heard since the mid-60s, Richard hinted at his background as a shy kid who had transformed himself into someone different. That there uh, are today many more things uh, that a kid is under subtle pressure to do well uh, than there were, uh, say, five or six years ago. There's, uh, you know, skateboarding and, uh, and surfing and, uh, and uh, just a whole raft of, of activities which are there, you know, in the magazines all the time and in playgrounds and whatnot. And I just always feel for the kids who can't do them, you know, and, uh, and what happens to them. And a lot of them, of course, grow up and become uh, poets. <laughs> uh, or, uh, but let's just say I feel for a lot of those, those kids. And very often they do, they do get to the point where, where uh, the chicks really dig them because they, they learn a, a different kind of reticence, a different kind of cool. And, uh, and so they get very popular and they get good at other things. So this is, this is called uh, Hard Loving Loser. Oh, uh, Dick, before you start, this is station WTVS in Cambridge. How did this transformation into a charismatic artist occur? Because this wasn't the original plan for Richard. Like many smart American kids in the post-war era, he had been groomed for a career in science. 
under his father's influence, and after getting a good education at Brooklyn Tech, Farina was accepted at Cornell, which is a, a premier uh, engineering institution. So he went to Cornell. Uh, his father wanted him to be an engineer, uh, but really had no particular aptitude for engineering and no particular interest. Even at this stage, he was being drawn towards the creative life, influenced by his experiences in Ireland and his college friendships. So he gives up science and takes up poetry, takes up literature. And he, one of his roommates at the time was another writer at Cornell named uh, Thomas Pynchon. He took a um, science exam and wrote uh, an essay about why he shouldn't be taking the exam because he had the heart of a poet. The science professor failed him, but he did show the exam to one of the English professors who said, oh, this guy has promise. Uh, and he uh, encouraged Farina to transfer into the English department. When he was 19 and a student at Cornell, Richard returned on his own to Ireland. It was then that my mother first encountered him. Coming home as a 16-year-old from the confined life of boarding school to the very quiet uh, life that I knew so well and seeing Richard in the chapel at Mass, glamour epitomised, I remember. My mother, Mary, wasn't the only one struck by the handsome young American. Some of the yells was a straber. <laughs> there was one of the yells particular. he was over making a phone call and the, the yell came in after him to the phone and asked for his signature and all. And she chatted and talked to him and she got out in front of him and he was at the phone and she wouldn't let him out. She stood with her hands across the room and talked to him and he was telling us the story. He says, I was nearly never getting out. <laughs> eh? So that was the clatter of Valley where he took everything in his stride. While he stayed in Arbo, Richard explored other places in Ireland. He was especially fond of motorbikes a mode of transport that would later play a fateful role in his life. Oh, he had a fad for the motorbike, even when he was here, sure, he got the motorbike and went on his own to Donegal and all of this. Eh? Like if you were in any other country, you would like a bit of help or someone like that, someone. He figured it all himself. <laughs> when he wasn't travelling, he was absorbing the vibrant traditional culture around him. My mother said to me that the Croziers were great that you you were great musicians. The fact well, uh, my brother, my two brothers played in the Healy Barn. They had a Healy Barn. I have a photo of it out there. I'll give it to you. I'll have a look. Uh-huh. And did, did do you think Richard picked up on that? He did. He loved Irish music. Loved Irish music. In the evening when he was sitting in the house and all of this, he would have chatted and talked and talked about all the poems and all of this. Will I show you that photo? Sure, yeah. But it wasn't a totally carefree time. Pat Grimes told me there was Republican activity in Arbo back then, as the IRA planned the border campaign of the 1950s. Right, 1950s, everybody knew who the Republicans were, who the Nationalists were, and, you know, we were about 99% area, Merton's Catholic area. You know, when he was here... The, the Republicans would have been 
doing a bit of fundraising, organising football, Gaelic football matches on a Sunday, that sort of thing, to do a bit of fundraising. There wouldn't have been much crack in that, you know, for a young person from America. I wonder, was it around this time that Richard's interest in republicanism really took hold? In any case, by the early 1960s, he had left Cornell University and moved back to New York. He worked in advertising and wrote poetry and stories on the side. And he was drawn to the folk clubs springing up around Greenwich Village. There was a scene, it was all just starting. Ethan Signer was one of the musicians in this emerging movement. And it was a cultural thing, you know, uh, and uh, it was just a very exciting time to be around. Everything was brand new. The instruments were brand new, the music was brand new. Richard fit into the bohemian lifestyle and protest songs of this new scene. Thanks to his experience of Ireland and Cuba, he had an air of authenticity and a radical sensibility. You know, he had a sense, a little bit ahead of most people, of what was cool and what, or what was going to be cool next. And he had an extraordinary ability to adapt himself to whatever that was. Richard became a regular in the scruffy night spots of the folk scene, where his Irish background stood him in good stead. He befriended influential Irish singers Tommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers. He hung around with Bob Dylan, who had just moved from Minnesota. Richard also met a striking young singer from Texas called Carolyn Hester. They were both in their early 20s. Richard was taken with her looks and also with her music. Like many in the folk scene, Carolyn performed Irish songs. 18 days after they met, she became Richard's first wife. Around the Greenwich Village folk scene of the early 60s, Richard was cutting quite a dash. He had this sense of style. That's David Haydu. He had a way of wearing his jacket over his shoulders like a cape that would sort of billow behind him as he walked down the street. He wore black tight jeans that he would always have dry clean so they had a certain look. Richard was a great raconteur, always willing to embellish his stories with sensational details. You know, he claimed to have a, a metal plate in his head. He didn't have a metal plate in his head. He claimed to sleep with uh, a loaded revolver under his pillow. If for fear of who knows what, he, you know, so he needed to protect himself. Was, uh, but, you know, the, he did have a revolver, but it didn't work. I was beginning to wonder if Richard was a Walter Mitty character, a fantasist who wouldn't let the truth get in the way of a good story. But could there be a grain of truth behind his fantastic stories about outlaw activity in Ireland? There was certainly vivid inspiration to be found around the loch. 
technically for generations, and there have been fishing here for hundreds of years, they were technically poachers. Uh, the lake didn't belong to them. That's my mother Mary again. She remembers how fishermen were wary of the authorities whenever they went out on the lake, which was owned by an aristocratic family. One of our duties as children was to climb up onto the, the walls of the church with binoculars because under the flat tombstone that is just beside the church there, they used to keep hay. And we would get up with our spyglasses, as they called them, and we could see the bailiff's boats because it was a big, powerful boat and it threw up a big big wave behind it. And the, their boats, the motor boats, they were old-conditioned motors, big boats. But when we saw King, as he was called, because one of the first water bailiffs was King, we alerted the old fishermen who would have been running lines. They came up from under that stone they grabbed hay, they lit a fire, and the fire was lit in very... It was Homeric. I mean, it really was. The fire was lit round, and you would see the little boats head for home. Like every fishing family, Richard's uncles knew well that their livelihood was considered illegal, according to Pat Grimes. There's something like 300 boats in Loch Ness at any given time, and they were fishing for their livelihood, three or four hundred families, and they were treated as outcasts. So when Richard was over, his uncles were fishermen, he was living in the house with them, going out on the loch with them in the morning, early morning, watching out for the bailiff boat coming. If the bailiff boat saw you, you had to cut your lanes, run for the land, motor for the land. But Richard wasn't put off by the prospect of being caught by the bailiffs. His uncle Oni remembers him revelling in the experience. He loved the law. Even when it was blowing and the waves coming over the deck of the boat. <laughs> he just loved it. It's no wonder he enjoyed going out in the water. It must have appealed to his sense of adventure. Where other men would have been duking, you know, and putting a coat round their head, he stood openly facing the wind and all the kids. Oh, he hadn't a chair in the world, he's carefree. <laughs> mama, mama, come Away from Ireland, Richard continued to pursue his musical ambitions. Baby, my brain. In 1962, while he was in London, he recorded an album with fellow Americans Eric von Schmidt and Ethan Signer. They were joined by a famous friend. Bob Dylan was in London at the same time and uh, showed up. He was under contract to somebody else and couldn't officially use his name, so he's on the recording as Blind Boy Grunt. That's Dylan playing harmonica. And so that was the group, uh, many bottles of Gordon's gin, which my wife at the time kept running out across the street to get more and more. And we had a wonderful old time. The record came out, and uh, I don't think it did very much. If Richard's debut album didn't make much of an impression, his personality certainly did. When, when you were in his presence, he was a forceful personality. He wasn't a guy who sat in the background and uh, you wondered who he was. Uh, he had that energy. He was a storyteller, 
so you couldn't tell whether what you were hearing was fact or fiction, but it didn't really matter because it was very entertaining. Who knows? You know, that was the kind of thing, you know, he ran guns from Cuba or not. Uh, he was involved with the IRA or not. Uh, don't know. He was, he was basically a storyteller in the good sense. So if some of those were entirely fabricated, who knows? Who cared, in fact? They were good stories. He didn't just recount his tales of Ireland. He turned them into works of fiction. This short story, about an American blowing up a British patrol boat on Loch Ney, really blurs the line between truth and fantasy. It's called An End to a Young Man. It was dark, and the Americans sat in the thatched cottage at a wooden table across from the two men. The two men wore caps and leather jackets. They smelled from the fishing, which was their livelihood. And they were fitting fuses into a set of six grenades. The American was examining a cocked box. Are you sure it's watertight? It was tested this morning, said one of them, who had no teeth. The other had red hair showing from under his cap. The American ran a finger along the cocked seams of the box's interior, nodded, then lifted over the plastic explosives and secured them to the screw eyes that had been placed there. He puts in a twist later in the short story. Although the American believes the boat is empty, the explosion kills five crewmen. According to writer Richie Unterberger, Richard's first wife, Carolyn, suspected the incident was rooted in a secret from his past. When I interviewed Carolyn and Hester, she did refer to an incident, but she felt that he felt so much guilt about something that he'd been involved with that might have caused somebody harm, that that is a reason that he almost like invented another identity. It was so painful for him to relive this incident where inadvertently he had caused somebody harm that he didn't want people to know about it. Even his second wife, Mimi, believed his IRA stories were true. This is the introduction she wrote to his short story, Set on the Lake. Dick loved Ireland. He loved to tell stories about it too, about all his Irish relatives. Dick went off to war in Ireland to be romantic. He really wanted to live all the things he wrote about and all the things that he felt. It was luck that they deported him when he was 18. But to have a dream about something and go off and do it, that's a great thing, even if it's as lousy as going off to war. Mimi Farina. So, could Richard really have been involved in the IRA in some way? Back in Arbo, Pat and Oni are sceptical, but admit his stories could have a basis in fact. Take it with a pinch of salt being an active member, but he would have known very much about the, what was going on. Just a tall tale, how oh, I he put that on. And he talked about going out to Cuba too. His father came from Cuba. There was a, an IRA, you know, when he was over here, but I don't think he was actively involved with what was being planned or anything like that. Richard's life changed when he met his second wife, Mimi Baez, on a trip to France in 1962. Mimi was a sister of Joan Baez, who was by then a big star on the folk scene. Mimi was only 18 when they got married a year later. Richard was 26. Singer Judy Collins believes the whirlwind romance was typical of Richard. He was married to Hester and five minutes later he's married to Mimi. Judy was a huge star on the 60s folk scene and became good friends with Richard. He was handsome and dangerous, I would say. 
he was a risk taker and he was crazy on some level. He was a daredevil. He had a lot of uh, things going on, you know. He was cooking on, cooking on all burners, I guess. Judy told me how he had an impulsive nature and was willing to back up his words with actions. This was a time during which my husband had had taken my son back to Connecticut and I, there was a there was a custody battle going on and he would sit in my living room in my apartment in New York and he would say, let's go get him. Let's go kidnap him. There is no reason why he should be with your husband. He should be with you. Let's go get him. I mean, he was willing to do that. He would have done that. He would have gone up there and, you know, with a gun and whatever was that. I mean, he was, he was crazy. And I practically, you know, Mamie and I really had to talk him down from that because he wanted to get that kid back. By 1964, Richard Farina and his wife Mimi were living in the northern Californian town of Carmel and playing music together. As a creative team, Richard and Mimi Farina were utterly uh, symbiotic. She brought the uh, musical grounding to it and some sophistication musically. He brought fire, energy, creativity, and and a certain aura to what they did. Things had started to happen for them. In 1965, they recorded two albums in the folk rock style being made popular by their friend Bob Dylan. But in this radio interview, Richard was ambivalent about pop success. Well, one of the things we're trying uh, to do is something that we're trying not to do, which is try not to run scared, because there's a lot of, a lot of going on you know, in, in New York and in Nashville and L.A. and whatnot. How do you mean run scared? Well, you know, run along with what what, uh, what people think we ought to be doing and what happens to be catching on at any given particular time. His creativity was blossoming. He was about to publish his first novel, drawing on his college experiences at Cornell. It was called, Been Down So Long, It Looks Like Up To Me. To Athena, then. Young Gnosis Papadopoulos, furry pooh bear, keeper of the flame, voyage back from the asphalt seas of the great wasted land. O highways U.S. 40 and unyielding 66, I am home to the glacier-gnawed gorges, the fingers of lakes, the golden girls of Westchester and Shaker Heights. See me loud with lies, big boots stomping, mind awash with schemes. That novel sounds very much of its time, but it gained a cult following and to this day is still available as a Penguin classic. When the book was published, on his wife Mimi's 21st birthday, Richard threw a party in Carmel. As the evening went on, he spotted a brand new Harley-Davidson motorcycle. Ever since his time in Ireland, he had been fascinated by bikes. He persuaded the owner to take him out on the Harley for a spin along the twisting coastal roads. You shouldn't have gone on that ride. The driver of that bike said, you know, they, they made a turn and... They really needed to lean low to make that turn safely. And Farini just, you know, was rigid, sitting upright, probably afraid. And uh, couldn't make the turn. 
Back in Arbo, in County Tyrone, Richard's uncle, Oney Crozier, received the news from America. Oh, it was the next day, next day, phone call came. And it was a shock to everybody. They could hardly believe it. A young life. Um, and then, especially, him signing the book, lad. Hmm? Oh, terrific. They say it's terrific speed according to the papers, like. I'm reading those newspaper reports. The bike left the road at high speed, bounded up a five-foot bank, ripped through barbed wire, crossed the field and smashed into a wooden fence. Farina suffered a depressed skull fracture and was dead before he could be removed from the accident scene. It was an accident. Because... It was a new bike, and he wanted to show off, you know, to Richie how he could ride the bike. And this was what happened. Richard died just as he seemed poised to become a star. It robbed American culture of a figure full of creative energy and potential. But Mimi remembered there had been another important part of his life. May 24th, 1966. Dear Crozier family, I am writing to tell you that I have sent the clothes of my late husband Richard Farina off to his family in Ireland. It was one thing he used to tell me to do with his old clothes. He spoke often of returning to Ireland, how he loved that country and all his uncles. So many times he would describe the times he spent there. I hope he gave you as much happiness as you gave him. He certainly filled my life with much adventure and love. My love to you now, Mimi. His early death meant that the truth of what happened in Arbo all those years ago has probably been lost. But Pat Grimes offers me an explanation that might go some way to providing an answer. Richard would have heard the conversations in the house. He'd been out on the loch with his uncles. He'd have realised this struggle, this is the Irish struggle. If he went back to America and maybe wrote or talked or said something about to save him explaining all that, he could have said, well, I was involved in... If he was out in a boat and raced from the bailiff or whatever, he felt he was part of that Irish struggle. So I would put... Because I think he was too intelligent to try to fool anybody. He was just using a shortcut. I cannot believe that he would have been a signed-up member of the... A secret society. Maybe Richard was just using his imagination to speak a broader truth. That's what artists do, after all. But in the stories he told, one detail kept reoccurring. He was always adamant a boat had been blown up. Did such an incident ever happen? It turns out it did. But unlike the short story, no one was hurt. Straban Chronicle, 17th of August, 1957. Loch Ney barge sunk near Coch. The barge Scrabo, belonging to the drainage division of the Ministry of Finance and carrying hundreds of pounds worth of dredging equipment, was sunk in Loch Ney by an explosion on Monday. A heavy charge of gelignite was fixed to the barge. Uh, a dredger came in to the Battery Harbour where eight, ten of the fishing boats fished from the Battery Harbour came in to clean it out. It was blown up. To the best of my knowledge, Richard wasn't in Ireland at the time. 
so the exact truth can never be known. Even now, he retains an air of mystery. I think he would have enjoyed that. But in our bow, I learned something more surprising about my own connection to him. Oni's mother was called uh, Catherine Coyle. Um, Catherine Coyle's mother was um, called Teresa Devlin. Her brother was John Devlin, who was your great-grandfather. So you'd be about a third cousin of Richard Freenia. That's how close it is. That, that's, yeah, that's, and that's pretty close even in, in Merton and Arbo. Okay, yeah. by Merton standard. It turns out I'm not the only relative to take a keen interest in him. I had heard of an American band called A Fragile Tomorrow who had recorded Richard's song One Way Ticket with his sister-in-law Joan Baez. Dom, Brendan and Sean Kelly are cousins of Richard and so cousins of mine. As far back as I can remember it was we were always told about Richard. We were played his music, we were told stories. I mean the importance of his legacy and, and it wasn't that he was just this cousin he was like a really big deal <laughs> that's Don Kelly going to our bow was really special to us that's that's been this place that we've just always dreamed of going because all of our family you know is from there I mean I, I'm telling you every single person mentioned Richard <laughs> I discovered I had stronger ties to Richard than I could imagine it felt right to visit his final resting place in Monterey's city cemetery, Bob Gordon shows me the grave. He was killed. The motorcycle accident was in Carmel, so. Uh, oh, was it really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Because they were renting a house. God, him and James Dean, man. You know. Oh, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Got it. That's it. There we go. That's right. Peace sign. Plants. That's right. There it is. Yeah, and Mimi actually purchased a lot for him. His Re- sister, I guess, his sister's Mimi. Uh, it's his wife was me. Oh, is that his wife, Mimi? Yeah. Oh, okay. So that was Joan Baez's sister then. That's correct. That's yes. correct, yes. Yeah, she purchased a lot, so yeah. Okay. There uh, we go. Richard Farina made his mark on America, Arbo, and me. And Ireland, in turn left its mark on him. He loved Ireland. Uh, I have a letter from him. Dear own, ever so often when I have an occasion to sit alone and let straight thoughts pass through my mind. I think back to my days in Ireland and I wonder if they were not the best days best days I have yet seen. And I'm beginning to think seriously on settling there for some time, when I'm free to do so, which will not be before two more years have elapsed. Yet, who is to say what good fortune is to befall me and enable me to return before then? All the best, and may God bless you all with love, Richie. Hear the combination of y'all and Joan together. It's like, it's badass. 